0: Welcome to What She Said, A Thrill of Hope. I'm Amanda Wood, and today is Tuesday, December 13th. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 1, 67 through 80. That is the end of chapter one of Luke. It is a very long passage that we're going to be reading today because it's all the song of Zacharias that he, um, these are his first words that he speaks after his long silence for punishment, for doubting God. So he has a lot to say and he begins to prophesy. Um, So I'll begin at verse 67 and we'll go all the way through verse 80, which is the end of Luke chapter one. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you child will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. With which the dayspring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So what we see here is Zacharias, his mouth recently opened for speech to return, using his first words to praise the God who just got through disciplining disciplining him. He has had a very long time to think about his mistake and the mercy of God, and we see the fruit of that discipline in this song. We're told that Zacharias is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. So this is a message from God as much as it is Zacharias speaking for himself. And remember, we have to really think about what's been happening here. Each time we're told that someone is filled with the Spirit, be it John, Elizabeth, Mary, and now Zacharias, each inspired message that they speak is part of the first words of God after 400 years of silence. No scripture, no prophets, no discernible message at all for 400 years. And now again and again, God's tearing through that silence to deliver the most incredible message of promise and hope that the world has ever heard. The first focus of Zacharias' prophecy is not his own newborn son, but Jesus. He calls Jesus the Horn of Salvation, just as God promised he would be in the Old Testament. In prophecy, a horn is a show of strength. It often represents rulers or kings in Throughout, especially you see in like Ezekiel and Revelation and these beasts and they have horns, that's always meant to signify some sort of ruler, um, some sort of power. God has done here what he promised by his prophets and his covenants. And Jesus will be the one who saves us from our enemies and brings the promised mercy. Next, Zacharias spoke of John and the place he had been graced with in God's great plan. He says that John is going to be a true prophet of God and he is meant to prepare the way for the Messiah. John is meant to teach and give knowledge of salvation to his people by the confession and forgiveness of their sins. The last part there, the give knowledge of salvation to his people, is really important. That's the thing we're going to kind of look at today. Um, But first, I wanted to tell you a quick summary of the history of Israel, because a lot of what Zachariah says here is a summary of the history. Um, And also, it's good to know the place exactly that Israel finds itself in during the time of Christ. So we've gone through a lot of this in bits and pieces before, but I think it's really helpful to just have it all laid out in one quick summation of scripture. So Israel as a nation began as just Abraham, who with his wife, Sarah, um, was another infertile couple of advanced age and no chance of children. A covenant which promised a great nation and descendants to number the stars and the grains of sand was given by God to Abraham. Through Abraham's own son of promise, Isaac, God gave Jacob, who would later have his name changed to Israel as the father of the nation directly, and that's because Jacob had 12 sons who were to become the future 12 tribes of Israel. One of these sons was Joseph, and we all know his story. He ended up as a slave in Egypt and rose to prominence under the Pharaoh. It eventually drew Jacob and his other sons into Egypt through a work of God in Joseph's life and a famine on the land. Over 100 years after Joseph's death with his family living in Egypt, a new Pharaoh enslaved the family of Jacob, which was the Hebrews, in Egypt. Though this was a tragic event, God used this time of slavery and oppression to grow Israel into a great nation. Egypt was sort of a mother's womb for this nation, and it was where they were able to grow, and um, they were inside of this really racist land where nobody would intermarry with them. Egyptians were very high on themselves, but this allowed um, Israel to be sequestered and untarnished by outside bloodlines as they grew into the nation that God created them to be. Eventually, God rescued them through a great show of power in the Exodus and led them out of Egypt to officially create the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai by the Mosaic Covenant. Israel was God's chosen people. They were his priestly nation to show himself to the world. He gave them a law to follow, and we see Israel go in and out of faithfulness to the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. It's clear that this law is purposefully imperfect as a step on the way to God's ultimate plan of redemption for the world. We move through the time of judges and into the time of kings, and there are three kings of a united Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon messed up some things, and his son Rehoboam immediately lost control of Israel, and they went into civil war. Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the latter of which um, contained Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had nothing but bad kings, and they received punishment from God by total defeat by Assyria. About 150 years later, God similarly punished Judah by allowing them to be conquered and exiled into Babylon, which is where we join up with Daniel in the story. Eventually, Babylon would fall to King Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, and Israel will be allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city walls, but only for the purposes of resetting their worship to God. King Cyrus was very um, religious himself, not Christian, but worshiping other gods, but in general, religion was important to him, and he wanted the um, Jewish people to be able to worship their own god. But... Still, even though the people were in Israel, they're not over. They're not under their own governance, and they won't be again for a very, very long time. The Persian Empire is then de- defeated by the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great um, are very interested in what is called Hellenization, which is spreading the Greek language and culture across the entire civilized world. And they were successful, which is why when we are on the scene at the time of Jesus' birth, there is a united language, which is part of being able to spread the New Testament in a unified language across most of the world. Eventually, the Greeks are defeated by the Roman Empire, and control of Israel passes on once again. So when we get to the story of Christ, we see an Israel who has long since lost their promised land, even though they are technically still living in it. It's really not theirs at the moment, and they have a fairly limited view of the Messiah as a political conqueror or an earthly king. What we see in this prophecy is Zacharias showing us that the Messiah is not going to be quite what the Jews expect, but he's going to be a lot more. The Messiah is about liberation, but not from the Roman Empire, from yourself and your sin. Jesus is here to redeem us so that we may come into relationship with the one who is actually in control of our lives. Sin doesn't just mean the bad things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Sin is... Everything that is not the way it is supposed to be. It's the evil, it's the death, it's the hardship, it's everything outside the perfect plan of God that sin impacts and causes to it to break down. By the nature of our birth, we are held hostage by this sin, by this evil, by this imperfect way which is outside and separate from God. We're in a daily war that we can't fight ourselves, but God can. And he sent Jesus as our savior and defender. And that is the message that Zacharias is beginning to get out to people in his song of praise and his prophecy. Once we surrender ourselves and follow God with our lives, our job is the same as John's job as the forerunner of the Messiah. We are, as the passage today said, to teach and give knowledge of salvation to his people. That's our job when we are followers of Christ, to teach and give knowledge of salvation to people. I think we are tempted to look at the world around us and see just good people and bad people. But practically speaking, that leads us to create three categories of people, which is like, number one, the really bad people. That's like the murderers and stuff. Number two is Christians. And number three is other people who aren't Christians, but they seem nice and they aren't bad. We don't want to look at everybody who's not a Christian and just think of them as bad people because they're our families and they're our friends and they're the people that we work with and the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. And... So it's hard to see them as anything but the good people that we know, but there are really only two groups of people on this world, in this world, on this earth. There is the redeemed and there is the rebellion. You're either with Christ or you're against him. And it's so hard to think of these people that we know and love who aren't in Christ as part of a rebellion in a war against Christ, but without Thinking of it, and without adjusting your perspective to see that reality, you won't accept the gravity of the responsibility that you're given as a messenger of Christ. You have to accept that these people around you who don't have God need Him because they're fighting against God and they're in desperate peril of their lives. First John three eight says, "Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, not worshiping Him, but themselves, not worshiping." Um, the devil. That's not what Satan wants. He doesn't want our worship. He doesn't care about our worship for him. He just wants his only motivation is to drive a wedge, an impossible chasm between us and God so that we cannot ever be in relationship with him. Jesus told his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He calls us to the same role and everyone who follows him with no excuses and no exceptions. There's none of us who get out of evangelism. It's not just for missionaries or pastors. Every single one of us who has called ourselves of Christ, who has called ourselves a Christian, who claims to walk in him and know the meaning of that, all of us are called To give the knowledge of his salvation to everyone around us we live in a very desperate and dying world and as Christians we hold the only hope which exists Jesus Christ is life and everything else is death there are no other ways to life to Christ to God except through Christ everything else is is death and we never want these people who we love and we cherish and we see as good we never want them to look at us and say why didn't you tell me you don't want to be the one who didn't tell them because you didn't understand your responsibility to spreading the news of the knowledge of salvation as a disciple of christ this christmas is a great time to practice going out and being bold people are much more open at Christmas and we have the perfect way to tell a lost and dying world about the life that was brought in by this tiny baby boy so go out in the world and look around you realize your responsibility and look at the people around you and pray for them and be in communication and contact with God so that you know the moment and the time to tell them how do you tell them without excuse without exception that's the job of all of us and it can be so hard and it can be so scary but when you have the light of Christ in you when you know what that's worth You want to give that knowledge to others and you want them to know the salvation that you found, the life that you have found, and the hope that you have found that was provided to us through this baby born on Christmas Day. That's going to be all for us today. Have a great one.